If you're not already a subscriber to the London Review of Books, now is the perfect time to try. Sign up for just £5 a month and treat yourself to some of the world's best writing from Europe's leading magazine of culture and ideas. Subscribe now while you're listening to this podcast at lrb.me forward slash now. That's lrb.me forward slash now. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hey guys, welcome to Giggly Squad, a place where we make fun of everything, but most importantly, ourselves. I'm Paige DeSorbo. I'm Hannah Burner. Welcome to the squad. Giggly Squad started on Summer House when we were giggling during an inappropriate time. But of course, we can't be managed. So we decided to start this podcast to continue giggling. We will make fun of pop culture news. We're watching. Fashion trends. Pep talks where we give advice. Mental health moments. And games and guests. Listen to Giggly Squad on Acast or wherever you get your podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop. The first time I was ever on the radio, somebody said to me afterwards, they said, isn't it nice to hear non-metropolitan voices? on the radio. I think they were being positive. And I think <laughs> what's nice tonight is that we have three fantastic non-metropolitan voices for us. There are voices from different parts of the country, from different parts of the world, from different traditions, from different inheritances. And that's the exciting thing. So each poet is going to read for 10 poetry minutes, which is about a year, isn't it, in real time? Because <laughs> you get as much out of 10 poetry minutes as you do from a year. Uh, there'll then be a short discussion during which we ask each other questions, then hopefully there'll be time at the end for you to ask us searching questions, which we'll attempt to answer in a humorous yet informative style. (laughs) One or two people are taking notes, which is a great thing. That's what we want to happen. Please take notes on what happens tonight. Save your tickets, because in years to come, people will pretend they were here who weren't. They'll say, we were there that night when we did the Chateau Poetry event. Because it really is a fantastic list, and I think that... As you know, we're living through interesting times. And I've said that bef- this before at poetry events. We don't want to look really to the politicians or perhaps even the historians to explain the world to us. I think we need to look to the poets. And I think our three poets tonight are explaining the world to us in a wonderful way. Uh, we're going to start with Helen Mort. Helen Mort's book, Division Street, is on one level a book about, about her. That's my wife. Tell her I'm on my way home. She's <laughs> I've got the house key, she's in the garden, just gardening. Um, She has been for years, actually, but that's another story. Um, William Hills, Hills, you see. Put your money on our Andrew to win. No, don't. Um, I think what Helen writes about, Helen does that wonderful thing where uh, the political and the psychogeographical, if you like, is seen through the prism of the personal. I think Helen is a writer who speaks in a South Yorkshire accent, a South Yorkshire slash North Derbyshire accent, which becomes, in her writing, a universal accent, an accent that can explain us to ourselves. Um, Her writing is political because, coming from the place she comes from and living in the time she lives in, she can't help but be be political. We're living through political times where we both live. Well, like we are anywhere, but I think we see it in brighter colours but where we live. What I've always loved about Helen's work is that she's kind of done a sort of trajectory of what you might call a poetic career, because she started off winning the Foyle Young Poets Award for about, was about 25 years running, Helen? She just kept winning it <laughs> from when she was a baby in arms, just kept winning it. And sometimes people do that and then f- fade away, they fizzle out. But what's so exciting about Helen is that the work gets better, the work improves, the work, the work develops, the work gets wonderfully, wonderfully better. So this book is a fantastic book, but we know that it's going to be the first of many, many, many books. And I think Helen is a wonderful poet that we'll be talking about for years to come. Please welcome Helen Mott. I believe you meant to walk around there. Oh, sorry. Yeah. I thought we were sitting here for no, a the, Sorry. We're going to the, pretend to be on the news the for the discussion. <laughs> but then the, the readings of the weather. Sorry about that. <laughs> Thanks. Um, 
I'm going to start off in, in North Derbyshire um, with the, the universal North Derbyshire accent. I like that idea. Um, and this is, this is set in a, a part of North East Derbyshire just outside Chesterfield uh, where I grew up. And Chesterfield is famous for having a, a bent church spire. And I, I did a programme for Radio 4 recently with Liz. And as part of the programme, I had the privilege of climbing the Crooked Spire and looking down at the whole of Chesterfield. It was an amazing experience. Um, And this poem is just called 22 Words for Snow. The lawn was freezing over, but the air stayed empty. And I wondered how the Inuit would name this waiting. Our radio playing to itself in the bathroom. The sound from the street of ice cream vans out of season. In this town where we don't have 22 words for anything. Where I learned the name for artificial hills. The bridge where a man was felled by bricks in the strike. From the window, I watch the sky as it starts to fill. In the kitchen, Dad sifts flour, still panning for something. And moving across the border into Sheffield, uh, this this poem is set in my my favourite Sheffield pub. Um, uh, which is called Fagan's it's an, it's an Irish pub and it's home to the most difficult pub quiz in the known <coughs> universe I think it's sort of like the, the cryptic crossword of pub quizzes um, and this is about one such night in there, Fagan's themed quiz the host part drunkard, part messiah his long hair lapping at his mustard tie I'm trying to connect everything with fire The page reads, starter, cracker, fighter, fly. My pints of moonshine and my team of one. The strip lights catch the table like a spark. I turned to ask you something and you'd gone. The windows frame their version of the dark. Halfway down West Street, you'll be lighting up. What links the fire of London and the colour blue? I'm wondering if a match would be enough. Or if there's really no smoke without you. Um, one of the things that um, Sarah and Liz and I have in common, apart from, from having the privilege of being published by Chateau and being part of a wonderful press, is that um, we were, we're, we're all here because we were all first published uh, pamphlets by Tall Lighthouse Press. And so I thought I'd read a poem from my book that was... One of the few poems that was in my first pamphlet published by Tall Lighthouse back in 2007, which seems like a long time ago now. Um, so I'd like to dedicate this poem to Les and Jan, who are in the audience. And this is, a, this is a poem set in Derbyshire in a place called Lytton, and it's called Lytton Mill. Hold me, you said, the way a glove is held by water. Black, fingerless, we'd watched it clutch a path across the pond never sure if it was water or wool that clung fast. The mills are plush apartments now, flanked by stiff-backed chimneys, and you ache for living voices, the clank and jostle of machinery, for something to move in this glassy pool where once you were the water wheel, I the dull silver it must catch and release and cannot hold. I'm going to read a couple of new poems uh, now. I'm working on another <coughs> collection um, since Division Street. And this one is, is a found poem, which is unusual for me. And it's um, all the phrases in it are taken entirely from two sources, from a Wikipedia article about how women's fashion started to change from the 1920s and an internet forum discussing the miniskirt or short skirts. <laughs> and um, all I've done is, is arrange it into a sort of rhyming pattern of alternating stanzas. So if any of the phrases seem surreal, that's because things that people say on the internet are more surreal than things you could actually say in real life. And it's just called skirt. For the first time in centuries, women's legs were seen, with hemlines rising to the knee. They are too short... It makes men want to go up their skirts. I am 60 years old. Do you agree? Knife-pleated skirts. Low-waisted dresses. Letting women quite literally kick up their heels. I too am past it and still want to go up women's skirts. I know how that feels. Proper attire for women was enforced for morning, afternoon activities. Adorned with sashes. Artificial flowers at the waist. I know we enjoy it, 
However, it ruins our summer, and I am tired. You can't look at their face. A more masculine look, including flattened breasts and hips, short hairstyles like the Marcel wave, the eaten crop. I don't go out of my way to stare down her top. It's just we get out of focus, and then we fail our exam. Marcel Gâteau, Francois Marcel. Given the dates, it's quite possible they were all the same man. Um, and the other one that I'll read is in when I can't sleep I end up watching lots of stuff on iPlayer and Channel 4 on, on repeat and um, my attention was grabbed the other night because I saw that there was a programme about Sheffield I thought oh wonderful, I wonder what it is I wonder if it's a programme about poetry or about culture in the city no, it was a programme that was um, that was a year in the life of city saunas in Attercliffe it was called the year in the life of a brothel I thought brilliant, good publicity for Sheffield um, it was a really interesting programme and um, there, there were two things that, that really stuck with me about, um, about this and one was, was how busy they were at Christmas, around Christmas Eve and, and Boxing Day, which was quite surreal. And also one, one girl who, who featured quite heavily in the programme who was saying that she thought that she was... She, she liked to think that she'd saved people from suicide and depression and the, the, the programme talked to her quite a lot, so... I tried to write something that's in her voice, I suppose, based on the things that she said in this programme. So it's just called Rachel in Attercliffe, and it's a rhyming sonnet. I'm in suspenders, working Boxing Day. Your dad, your boyfriend, nips out for a beer, then indicates down Derek Dooley Way. The sign outside says entrance at rear. There's tinsel round the banister, a star above each bedroom door. I'm crimson to my hips. I let them lift the layers and unhook my bra. They're talkative, telling me what the kids got yesterday. I smile. I don't mention my son. Sometimes I say I work in mental health. The ones who are silent when they come intrigue me most. You have to laugh at yourself. I like to think there's hospital, a recently dead wife. I like to think I'm saving someone's life. Um, and the last poem that I'll do is also set in Sheffield, very far across the other side of the city, very different environment, and uh, it's in an area called Low Edges, which I've always thought is a really beautiful word and a very beautiful name for that, for that bit of town. And it's the last poem in my collection, Division Street, so thanks very much. And thanks to Parissa for editing it so, so carefully. Low Edges. And if those doors to other worlds exist, you'll find them here. Low edges, where the city smooths its skirt down in the name of modesty, picks up its jacket, calls it a night. Here, Bichon Friesses chase their tails all morning on the astroturf. A biker lets go of his handlebars and doesn't fall. A woman rolls the afternoon into a cigarette and smokes it silently. Forget the Cornish Sea, the top of Nevis with its trapdoor light. If you're to leave this world, you'll leave it here. This salvage Friday, shop lights dimmed. Look up, how easily the rain bisects the sky. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Helen. Um, my grandson is a big reader, but uh, he can't quite fathom poetry, to be honest with you. He, he'll be sitting there, he likes, he likes big, <coughs> thick novels, and he'll sit reading a novel and be kind of proud of how much he's read in that day, and he can't, he can't quite get the idea of the slim volume. And, he, and I said, he says, look, Grandad, your books that you enjoy reading, they're very, they're quite thin. And I said, yes. Uh, the technical term is slim. It's a slim <laughs> volume. And, and it, it sounds like I'm making this up, but I was reading Sarah's book in the conservatory the other day, and he was there, and he's looking at it, and he said, is that one of those slim volumes? I said, yes. And he said, you've been reading it for a long time. I said, yes. He said, I've read the whole of a Harry Potter book whilst you've been reading this slim volume. I said, yes. That's because a slim volume you take your time with. 
It's not like if there's only 64 pages, it doesn't take you long. And then he, he had a look, he read some of the poems and he didn't quite understand them, but he's a clever boy and he said, and this sounds like I'm making this up, but it's true. He said, it's like a, a strap line. He said, it might be slim, he said, but it's deep. I said, exactly, exactly. <laughs> I wish I was making that up, but it's true. And he said, I understand that, I understand. I said, yes. You can take your time with these. You don't have to race through them like you do with the Harry Potter. And that's the great thing about Sarah's book. I think it just, it, you take your time with it. You take your time and it does the things that prose can't do. I love reading difficult prose. I love it. I love reading hard prose. But you can never get the depth out of it that you get out of poems like Sarah's because each poem reveals things about history, about personal history, about wider history, but also about what I like about Sarah's work is that she'll try her best to find new ways of saying things. She'll try her best to find new ways of presenting ideas. There are prose sections in here, there are long sections, there are recurring sections that are to do with Borges. There's, you can read it from the front to the back and the back to the front. You can go in the middle, swim around in it, come out the other side. It's got that kind of depth. It's like the deep end of a pool. It is an amazing book, I think this. It's the English-Chinese heritage, which we don't often see looked at in contemporary poetry. It's another non-metropolitan voice, and it's not slim, it's deep, which I think is a great, great strapline, which uh, I'm going to pretend that I thought of and my grandson had nothing to do with, because he's not here. So that's all. So, Sarah. Thanks so much, Ian. Maybe, um, maybe we could have um, Ian Macmillan's grandson's endorsement on the next one of these. Yeah, let's do it. It's really an honour to uh, share an editor and a stage with two poets I admire so much. Um, I'm going to start with um, a poem called Faults Escaped. I wake to a sodium forest. Passengers speed through tickering afterglows. The bright underpass thirsts tonight. In shattered factories, machines hum on and daylight shakes itself out. Imagine mounting over the corrugated world. Imagine how it arrows. One upside-down eye after another snatches of heaven in a misted spoon. Then they are gone. I like to listen for the gabble of surfaces. All summer, the dripping walls, the wind-blown gate, unable to stop. They say belief is a comfort. Still, the whispering, as the ants dismantle every floor, insert themselves in cracks like keys all summer, and how the wet grout crumbles tonight into honey, and all my pretty tiles lie slumped. The shop front trembles in its shutters. Night is a veiled and silent mother. A living cave, the stirrings in the sides. Water pushing blindly through a stone. Each cold diamond determined to be born. Too soon they leave. Their love, a bloom of salt. Those encaustic tears, the stars. Please excuse my very metropolitan, non-metropolitan accent. Um, if I sound like I was born at the tail end of the British Empire, that's because I was. Um, I'm from Hong Kong. And um, I think a lot of Hong Kong people are quite conscious of the fact that they're free because of their special political status to say and think things that aren't allowed on the Chinese mainland. Um, I've got very fascinated in recent years by the game of cat and mouse that Chinese dissidents play with the um, internet censors, the so-called Great Firewall of China. Um, and I think it's fascinating that they use poetic means like punning, whether on the sound of words or the look of characters, to uh, bypass these filters. Um, so especially I 
was gripped by this sort of evolving man menagerie of animals, evolving because they have to keep one step ahead of the government, of things like um, the grass mud horse, uh, uh, which um, sounds in Chinese a lot like, you probably shouldn't swear, like F your mother, or um, the elephant of truth, or the crab of harmony, all these phrases which sound just like very politically resonant ones in Chinese. Um, so this poem has uh, an epigraph from a collection of Buddhist koans called The Gateless Gate. Bai Zhang picked up a water pitcher, set it on a rock, and posed this question. If you cannot call it a water pitcher, what do you call it? Having just broken the water pitcher. This fact I can't forget. My 30th year had hastened by before I learned to see how plum blossom lies one sidelong stroke of gum-suspended soot away from regret. It said the man who invented writing, charged with this burden by the emperor, sought inspiration in the surface moods of water, that he was by the river when he spied in the finely cracking mud a hoof print, its brim still as a bronzed mirror, stamped there by some invisible creature, and understood his task. The moment he sketched the first character, the sky rained millet, and the ghosts wailed all night, for they could not change their shapes. Five thousand years later, in some remote coal mining district sits an anonymous blogger, his face lit by more than just the ancient monitor. He ponders how strange it is, how useful, that I beg you for the truth is pronounced the same as I beg you elephant of truth, or that sensitive words, as in filters, crackdowns, sounds exactly like breakable porcelain. Done typing, he clicks submit. Recall the old monk's koan, the correct reply to Master Baijang's question. His pupil kicked over the picture and left. This next one is called Monopoly After Ashbury and had very mundane origins in as much as I was um, sort of riffling through a deck of those cards that you get in a Monopoly pack, you know, like the community chest, and it sort of says things like, a birthday card from your grandma, collect £10. Um, and I thought, gosh, these little gnomic utterances, um, the, somebody should put these in a poem. Um, and I think it was recently post-credit crunch at the time, so this poem was inflected by that. Monopoly. I keep everything until the moment it's needed. I am the glint in your bank manager's eye. I never eat, never eat cake in case of global meltdown. I am my own consolation. I have a troubled relationship with material things. I drop my coppers smugly in the river. I do everything with an unbearable smugness. I propose a vote of thanks. I make small errors in your favor. Sometimes I pretend nothing is wrong. I won second prize in a beauty contest. I am yellowing at the edges. I was last seen drawing the short straw. I hang about tragically on street corners where I hand out cards that read, if you see I am struggling to lift this card, Please, do not help me. And I'm going to end with a slightly longer, but mercifully not too long poem. Um, my mum grew up as an orphan, though not exactly an orphan, I suppose more um, an abandoned baby. And so I, in an attempt to understand that part of her life, I did a lot of reading about Chinese orphanages though she didn't exactly grow up in an orphanage, and that made its way into this poem. As did the fact, um, the custom in ancient China, that the midwife would shake out um, a tray of ashes from the fire 
and placed them next to the birthing bed so that if the baby was female, it could be efficiently smothered, should the parents so choose. Tame. It is more profitable to raise geese than daughters. Chinese proverb. This is the tale of the woodsman's daughter, born with a box of ashes set beside the bed in case. Before the baby's first cry, he rolled her face into the cinders, held it. Weak from the bloom of too much blood, the new mother tried to stop his hand. He dragged her out into the yard, flogged her with the usual branch. If it was magic in the wood, they never said, but she began to change. Her scar ridged back beneath his lashes, toughened to a rind. It split and crusted into bark. Her prone knees dug in the sandy ground and rooted, questing for water, as her work-grained fingers lengthened into twigs. The tree, a lychee, he continued to curse as if it were his wife, its useless, meagre fruit. Meanwhile, the girl survived, feathered in greyish ash, her face tucked in, a little gosling. He called her Maiming, no name. She never learned to speak, her life maimed by her father's sorrow. For grief is a powerful thing, even for objects never conceived. He should have dropped her down the well, then at least he could forget. Sometimes, when he set to work, hefting up his axe to watch the cleanness of its arc, she butted at his elbow, again, again, with her restive head, till angry he flapped her from him. But if these pleas had meaning, neither knew. The child's only comfort came from nestling under the lychee tree. Its shifting branches whistled her wordless lullabies the lychees with their watchful eyes, the wild geese crossing overhead. The fruit, the geese, they marked her seasons. She didn't long to join the birds, if longing implies a will beyond the blindest instinct. Then, one mid-autumn, she craned her neck so far to mark the geese wheeling through the clouded hills, it kept on stretching till it tapered in a beak. Her pink toes sprouted webs and claws. Her helpless arms found strength in wings. The goose daughter soared to join the arrowed skein. Kin, linked by a single aim and tide, she knew their heading and their need. They spent that year or more in flight, but where, across what sparkling tundral wastes, I've not heard tell. Some say the fable ended there, but those who know the ways of wild geese know too the obligation to return to their first dwelling place. Let this suffice. Late spring, a woodsman snares a wild goose that spirals clean into his yard, almost like it knows. Gripping its sinewed neck, he presses it down into the block cross-hewn from a lychee trunk. A single blow, profit, loss. Thank you. Thank you very much, Sarah. Um, when I think about Liz Berry's poems, there are two poets that come to mind. The first one is Roy Fisher, who, in my opinion, is the greatest living poet in the country. And he, he's not from the black country, he's from Birmingham. There are two, there's a, a distinction there. But what Roy Fisher says is, Birmingham's what I think with. And I think Liz Berry thinks with the black country. She thinks with that wonderful, neglected area. She thinks in its rhythms and its locutions and its sense of opposition 
The other poet I think of is a poet from Dudley called Dave Reeves, who isn't that well known, but I've known him for many years, and he used to live in a house that he could only rent for 11 months of the year because the chap he rented it from came back every August, which means that Dave, every August, had to move out and take all his stuff with him, and the chap came back and moved in for a month, and there were certain cupboards that Dave couldn't go in. And it's true me that that's what, in a sense, black country language is. It's a language that isn't allowed to own the place it lives in for the whole year, that somehow received pronunciation will always nip in and just steal a bit from it. And what I love about Liz as poems is that she'll take the black country language and she'll make it for the 21st century, she'll make it political, she'll make it profound, she'll make it loving. You think about Tony Harrison who said that people who talk like me are the ones that Shakespeare gives the comedy parts to. And that's the problem with the black country. Black country language is seen as not profound and not moving and not emotional. But it can be. And it is in Liz Berry's hands. So Liz Berry. And I want to say she's Boston. Boston is a great black country word. I've never said it before because I'm not from a black country. And I feel a fraud <laughs> saying it. But I'll say it anyway. Her poems are Boston. They are. <laughs> Liz. that lovely introduction. Such a pleasure to be here, to read alongside the girls. What, what a wonderful night. Um, I'm going to start by reading a poem that I actually wrote for Helen. We made a programme for Radio 4 earlier in the year in which I travelled up from the black country and she travelled down from the north and we met halfway in Ashby de la Zouche. <laughs> <laughs> But when I was thinking of it in my head, when I received the invitation to meet her halfway, it seemed to me sort of a strangely romantic thing to try and lure another poet halfway from their hometown. <laughs> so I wrote this poem and it worked because she came. <laughs> the meeting. Come, girl from the North Country. Come by Bolsover, by Burley. Come by Rother, by Sheaf. By the star and the mercury. Come by stainless, by crucible, by cholera, by flood. Come by strike, by scab, by duck and by love. Bring a whippet for a whammel, the peaks for the lickies. Bring homers for tumblers, Park Hill for Lost City. Bring Speedwell for singing, a bairn for a babby, sandstone for limestone, Division Street for black country. Come by the map in your head, come by toll, by cut. I'll meet you at the Isogloss, knee deep in lap love. The cooling towers radiant as spires in the light. My heart an anchor, your body slender as a knife. This next poem's called The Silver Birch. Let me tell you about the sex I knew before sex. In the beginning, when I was a creature. When I took the bit of your hair between my teeth and pushed your face to the silver birch while you whimpered at the fur of me. How I came alive in dens and copses, in the tall grass where the sky lurched violet. Yes, those days. When I was neither girl nor boy, but my body was a sheaf of unwritten upon paper, now folding, unfolding origami in new. Days pale as a silver birch. When sex was a pebble, thrown into the pond of me, rippling out. When I held your fingers in my mouth, as the woods hummed electric with sensation. Now they sang. Now 
and everything was sex then. Although I could not name it. It was the scar upon your shoulder. An arrow of light through the beaches. Days. Days wet as the cuckoo spit. When I lay skin bare in the field. Every insect. Jack in the hedge. Every bowing poppy touching me. Oh, my body was a meadow then. And you could lie in me forever and still not be done. Bird. When I became a bird, Lord, nothing could not stop me. The air feathered as I knelt by my open window for the charm. Black on gold, last star of the dawn. Singing, they came. Throstles, Jenny Wrens, Jack Squallers swinging their anchors through the clouds. My heart beat like a wing. I shed my nightdress to the drowning arms of the dark. My shoes to the sun's widening mouth. Bed. I found my bones hollowing to slender pipes. My shoulder blades tufted in doubt. I spread my flight greedy arms to watch my fingers dueling like ten hummingbirds. My feet callousing to knuckly claws as my lips calcified to a hooked kiss silence then an exultation of larks filled the clouds and in my mother's voice chorused take flight chick go far for the winter so I left girlhood behind me like a blue egg Stepped off from the window ledge. How light I was. As they lifted me up from Wren's nest, bore me over the edgelands of concrete and coal. I saw my grandmother waving up from her fold. Loop the infant school and factory. Let the zephyrs carry me out to the coast. Lunas, I flew battered and tuneless. The storms turned me inside out like a fury. There wasn't one small part of my body didn't ball. Till I felt it. At last. The rush of squalls thrilling my wing. And I knew my voice was no longer words but song. Black upon black. I raised my throat to the wind. And this is what I sang. I'll just read two more poems. Um, both of them written for my little boy. Um, my little boy was born ooh, 20 months ago. Um, but in the last months of being pregnant, I found myself thinking a lot about what, what that night, that moment of birth would be like. Um, it came with something of a shock, I can tell you. <laughs> <laughs> but in my romantic imaginings, I found myself thinking a lot about the night when my partner was born and how somebody being born, whether it be a future girlfriend, boyfriend, husband, wife, how that goes on to change your story forever, even though it might be years, even decades before you'll know it. it seems such a beautiful thought to me. So it's called The Night You Were Born. It was a month before May. All the lights in the black country out for the evening. Wren's nest tucked under a blanket of darkness. 
Might the downy by the fog beams of your dad's van as it sped to the hospital? In the back, the dog snuffling in a bed of tools and wood shavings. In the front, your mom panting on the turns, a frightened moon face waning at the window. I think about that night when I doze, heavy with our sun in the snow soft hours. What it would have been to have seen you pushed, howling from that red tent of legs. The first word on the page of our story. Press myself against you in the darkness. Listen for your murmur as he moves inside me. Oh, love. I can almost hear it now. That first cry. A raw thread of sound spooling through winter to stitch our lives together. And I'll finish off with a little black country lullaby. Um, my son's name is, is Tom, Tom Robin. Um, and that's also a very old black country sort of word for the Robin, the Tom Robin. So I felt the need to somehow sneak it into the poem. So perhaps when he's grown up, he'll know. Lullaby. Babby. The sky's turning collied as coal. Tom Robin's gone nesting. Now Bob Owl is testing his wings for his flight to our cobwebby bulb. And the moon is a penny tossed into the cut to pay for the dream belt that ferries us off. So hush now, my sweet chick. Hush, oh, hush, hush. Darling. The night is a randana dreams. Old wammels and howling, ghost cats and prowling for long-eating rots in the rafters and beams. And the moon is a penny tossed into the cut to pay for the dream boat that ferries us off. Lovey, the night is as deep as the thick. Where restless black osses still stamp for their bosses to lead them back warm from the gob of the pit. And the moon is a penny tossed into the cut to pay for the dream belt that ferries us off. But hearken, the song of the nights falling soft. Oak trees am shushing, the homers am rushing to roost in the tumbly snog of their loft. And the moon is a penny tossed into the cut to pay for the dream belt that ferries us off. Oh, Babby. In Tipton, from Loy to Blackheath, a dark towns doze under their blanket of slumber, so curl in my crook. Let me lull you to sleep. For the moon is a penny tossed into the cut to pay for the dream belt that ferries us off. So hush you, my sweet chick. Hush you. Hush, hush. Thanks. Thank you very much, Liz, and thanks to all our three readers. I think you'll agree, three amazing poetic voices there. And one thing I want to ask is, here we are in this room that's full of completed works. We're in a bookshop. We're full of finished things here. And I'm always interested in the very beginnings of when we all start to write and what's the initial impulse behind writing. So, Helen, what was it for you? What started you off as a younger person? Because... 
What was it? What was it that got you going? I think it was for me. It was probably being an only child and my mum and dad not having a telly. So mm. when I when I was really little, I can a lot of my earliest memories are sound memories, and it's like listening to the radio and things like that. So I think there's probably something about that that got me very interested in the sound of, of language. And then apparently I wouldn't go to sleep unless I was read to, unless I was read a story. So it was probably that. I think that combination that did it. But then at school, were you encouraged to write? Um, not especially, no. Hmm. I think I always felt of it. I always thought of writing as something that existed very much outside the curriculum. It was like a secret or something that you could. It was like an imaginative world that you could turn to, hmm. sort of beyond school. Really, it's always been a bit like that for me. It's probably why I never studied English at university. Probably something to do with that feeling of it always being something separate from from studies. Although now I kind of regret not knowing, you know, not, not having studied some of that and not knowing more about it. So thinking about when you went on to do uh, the FOIL prize, did, were you encouraged to enter that maybe by a particular teacher or by your parents? Or? Um, it was my uncle, actually. Mm. My uncle is a writer and he, um, he'd got a clipping in the post that he sent to my mum and dad. He probably thought it would keep me quiet or shut me up for a bit. So he said, you should tell Helen to enter this competition. And that was a really big stepping stone for me I think it's a great competition um, and it, yeah it, it, was, it was really important to me that the prize wasn't something like money or anything like that it was, the prize was to spend time with other young writers and with tutors on a residential week um, at an Arvon Centre at Lumbank and that's the best gift that you could give to, to a young writer to somebody who wants who wants to become a writer is the feeling that it's normal to spend this week where it's mm. normal for everyone to talk about poetry and to, to revel in it because you, I went back and that wasn't normal again but to have this sort of that impetus was really good I think I think it's a fantastic competition It does work first I, I didn't win any competitions but when, I, when you first go on an Arvon course and you're with people who don't think that what you're doing is strange it's such a wonderful thing to sit with 15 other people who want to write poems so Sarah, you, you, what about you? What was that? I'm interested in these first impulses that get people to want to write. Um, I don't think I really wrote very much as a child or a teenager, which I think is actually quite unusual when you talk to poets. They're, mm. they're sort of driven often, and I never really had that. Um, I can remember being set sort of tasks in classrooms or homework that involved writing poems. But I think the first time I voluntarily sat down to write one off my own bat was when I saw the poster for the foil competition up on the pin board in the corridor, in the English corridor at school. I must have been 16. And I thought, oh, that looks quite nice. Let's give that a go. Um, so I think I must have spent a week or two splurging some horrific things onto onto my laptop screen and then sent them off. And extraordinarily, one of these splurges um, went on to be chosen. And embarrassingly, uh, after a good decade of it being safely under wraps, I think the Poetry Society put it online recently <laughs> when they digitised their archive. So I must make a mental note to ask them to take that down. <laughs> but, um, yeah, it's interesting, Helen, that you talk about sound in your childhood and this sort of dissociation of... Um, sound and sense as being something we especially associate with childhood, that being in the sort of um, experiential makeup of poets. I had that experience really intensely as well because of growing up in Hong Kong and hearing my mum speaking a language, Cantonese, which I couldn't, except in smatterings, understand. Mm. Um, so I think something about that has sort of stayed with me. So sound is probably a thing. So what about you, Liz? Where did you, what was your first impulse? You won't move, you have to move towards it. I'm a bit closer. Um, I was lucky because I grew up in a house where poetry and music and reading was really treasured. My mum and dad both loved poems, and so from when we were really little, we read lots of poems and we listened to poems being read. We did that old-fashioned but brilliant thing of learning lots of poems off by heart. Mm. And then when I was old enough to write, I suppose I started to write my own, really encouraged by my dad. Mm. Um, and that sort of went on. And then I had a big lapse when I was at university and became a teacher and then came back to it as an adult through night school. And were you told, like I was, that I couldn't write in my voice, that I had to write in... If I, if I wrote the way I spoke, it wouldn't be proper poetry, as my mother would call it. Because you, you celebrate the black country accent so much. I do, and I think that's been a conscious choice that I've made as an adult. Mm. Um, 
I started getting really interested in dialect the more I started reading. And I read these amazing, beautiful poems written in Scots dialect. And I thought, hang on, why is no one celebrating this amazing language that's in the black country in that way? And the language that my family spoke and my nan and granddad spoke and, and people spoke in the pubs at home. Why was no one saying that that was the stuff of poetry? Mm. I thought it was and it could be. And so it was a choice I made as an adult to sort of pluck it out and celebrate it. So it seems to me we are in the middle of a sort of radical dialect movement. I think of a poet like Jacqueline Gabitas, Ooh. who writes in Deep Works Up, mm-hmm. and uh, Miriam Aubrey, who writes in a kind of Dorset dialect. Mm-hmm. What's the name of the woman who writes in Cockney? She's published by any farm on press. Forgotten her name? It's not a quiz. There's no prizes. <laughs> Anna, Anna Robinson. Anna Robinson. Anna Rob. Well done. You win the prize. I wish there was a prize. <laughs> the dialect prize. <laughs> and it seems to me that we're, we're reclaiming that, which is a, a fantastically exciting thing. So, thinking again about beginnings, I'm also interested in how a poem begins for you. Does it begin in a place beyond language? Does it begin with scribbled notes? Does it begin with an overhearing? Does it begin with an idea? Uh, Sarah, let's start with you. How does, it be, how does a poem begin? Um, I guess uh, it does often actually for me begin with an idea uh, but that's uh, a tendency that I'm almost suspicious of because if a poem is just idea then it's not going to come to life really. So one of the many warm-up rituals that I go through in my procrastinating way when I'm trying to delay having to actually start writing the poem is I flick through books not necessarily poetry books, just any books and copy down random words um, Mm. onto a sheet of paper and there's something about that that you stop thinking about what they mean and I find that sort of separation uh, that starts to happen in my head is almost like a meditative thing Um, and then after sort of 15 minutes of doing that I seem to be able to to start writing. And do those words then recur in the poem? They often do, actually, yeah. So there's a sort of chance element in it, which Mm. I... It's quite funny that sometimes they won't until um, several lines are down and then I'll think, I need a word here, and I'll look through my word list and be like, yes, that is the right word. So it's (laughs) it's something about trusting to the unconscious, I think, Mm. um, which uh, I'm very interested in doing. I like the practicality of that, the kind of practical slash mystical nature of that (laughs) practical thing of writing down the list which then unlocks things but then going back to that list that's a great thing to do what about you Liz how do you begin where do they start for you Um, normally I I suppose it begins with a feeling Hmm? or a little unease or something I've been fretting at or wanting to write about or or wondering about in my head and I normally start by doing lots of free writing so I might have an image or an idea or a thought and then I'll just make often pages of free notes or big spider diagrams. Um, So I find that helps me get to the the wild places and you uncover different things and different emotional links and and surprising things. And sometimes you might be writing for pages and then you think, oh, that's it, that's the sore spot or that's what I want to get to or that's the tender place. But I find that lots of writing goes in and then it's a process of pairing back after that. So it is, again, that's a practical thing, isn't it? Of making these lists, making free writing that somehow... It frees you up. That's why mm. it's called free writing. It frees you up and it's the equivalent mm. of Sarah's word list. What about, what about you, Helen? Um, I find it really interesting hearing about how other writers start mm. to write. It's like hearing about magic, isn't it? Um, <laughs> I'm quite different, I think. I um, Usually I've got an idea for something that I know that I really want to write about that's and I probably carry it around in my head for quite a long time sometimes maybe for months or even years or something like that and usually I'm waiting for it to connect with something else and the other thing is usually a more seemingly mundane thing like quite often it's something that I've talked about overhearings or something I've overheard or something that I've seen because I think that those things like I was saying in one of the poems sometimes those things are more surreal than anything you could possibly make up and it's just life presents you these things all the time so then um, again I wouldn't write anything down probably at that stage probably keep it in my head for quite a while and um, quite often my poems only start to become a poem if I go out for a walk or for a run or something like that and um, something about the rhythm of that of, of being on the move 
helps me to start the poem or start a line and then I sort of try to write it in my head and remember it until I get home again which sometimes if you're running can be quite challenging because you have to go extra lap around the blocks you've not got to the end of your poem yet or something like that so it's mostly off the paper by the time I get to the paper I've usually got a I'm not doing so much working out them, sort of have a shape of it at least, or I know vaguely where I think the poem's going to go on the page. It's just so interesting, this letting the light in on magic, isn't it? Very, very interesting. <laughs> on the train on the way down, this woman was laughing her head off, and her mate said, what are you laughing at? And she said, stabilisers on bikes. They're so funny. Um, and I never thought that before, perhaps they are, but it, it struck me that I'll write a poem about that, I'm sure. So, so that's where it begins. So I, one final thing to ask is maybe, so what's next for the three of you? We've got these fantastic books. I know, Helen, you've been working on other forms. So maybe we'll start with you and just tell us what's happening next in your writing. I, well, I suppose the great thing is, you know, on the level of the individual poems, you never entirely know, and that's why it's good. But um, I've been working on a second collection of poems, um, which is going to come out next year. And I've also been writing a novel, or trying to write a novel, and we'll see if that ever reaches the light of day. So it's been very interesting writing them in parallel and appreciating the differences between how you write poetry and how you can sit down and make yourself write prose, I think, in a way that I don't usually with my poems. Did you find that... Because as poets, we're not often asked to write things with a plot in them. Did you find the plot hard? Um, weirdly, it's a very, very plot-driven novel, right. and it's quite a complicated narrative. And it's very much—it's very much not the kind of. If I'd ever, I'd never expected to try and write a novel. But if I had expected to try and write one, I would have imagined it would have been very thin on plot because <laughs> um, I wouldn't have imagined I'd be able to do that. So it's strange that it's ended up going the other way, and it's mm. actually. I'm not sure if I found it hard. I found it very different, definitely, yeah. Right. Sarah, what about you? What's happening next? Um, I almost feel like, because my book came out so recently, just mm. um, a couple of months ago, I'm not quite yet in that headspace of knowing where to go next, and so I think I might try and wander lonely as a cloud for a bit longer before <laughs> I try and pin it down. But I think one thing I'm really looking forward to is that actually in a couple of weeks' time I'm moving to America for a year, um, because uh, one of the universities there was uh, foolish enough to give me a writing fellowship. Mm. And funnily enough, it was actually exactly ten years ago this year that I started writing the poems that went into this book. And it was also in America, where I, I spent a year back then. Um, and it was something about being in a new place and away from home and the discomfort and excitement of that that turned into poetry and so I'm hoping that that magic might work for me again mm. What about you Liz? Um, well I suppose I've been working side by side on two separate projects one is um, since I finished the poems in Black Country I had a little boy so I found myself wanting to write lots about that experience about parenthood and, and having a child Separately, I've started work um, on a sequence of poems which tell another story, and it's a fascinating but little-known story. Between the 1860s and the 1960s, more than 150,000 of the poorest and most vulnerable children in Britain were forcibly sent out to the British colonies as child migrants. And the sequence follows the story of one of them, who was my great-great-aunt, Eliza Shewell, who was sent from a children's home in the black country, um, a really dark urban mining area, to a place called Marble Mountain, a marble mining town in Nova Scotia in Canada. She never, never went back, never knew that her family had looked for her for all those years because contact was severed. But it seemed to me such a, a heartbreaking but also incredibly rich story about, about home and about family and what language means and the parallels between going from a place that mines blackness to a place that mines light and, and whiteness. Um, so that's what I started working on. But it takes a poet to notice that, mm -hmm. do you think? I, mean, yeah. I hope so. Of <laughs> course, yeah. we've got three poets, so we've got time for three questions. That's all. Is this a gentleman with a roving mic or is there five? Oh, yes. Oh. We like a roving mic. Lady at the front. I'm, I was really interested that all three of you alluded to politics and I really welcomed that. And I wondered whether, because Britain is about 
is in the throes of entering a political debate as we have never seen before, where real solid politics is going to be part of something that we are all engaged in. And as much as the attempts of the great and the glorious to silence us, we are actually engaged in that process. And we are all going to learn from that process. And I wondered if, as poets, any of you were particularly inspired in this climate to write a very contemporary political poem? I think that every day, the things we do, the things we say, the interactions we have, the way we parent, the way we're friends, the way we are as colleagues, if we work, if we work in education, the things we do, that's all part of being engaged in politics. And I think often people don't realise it. I don't think I'm brave enough to write an overtly political poem. But I suppose I'm interested to talk about the politics of communities and families in perhaps more subtle ways. I come from an area that used to be incredibly industrial and really rich in industry and jobs, and now isn't, and it's in a process of metamorphosis. Not quite sure what's going to happen now in that post-industrial era. So I'm interested in, I suppose, that on a community level and a family level. I think um, I'd echo that, really, that I'm interested in some of the same things. And I I find that... um, I suppose a lot of poetry works in a slightly indirect way. Does it? For me, the more I think about politics and uh, the more I think about things that are going on now, for example, I end up, when I try to write about it, I always end up going backwards, I suppose, and thinking about things that have, that have influenced what's going on now. So I suppose one thing I've been very interested in in some of the poems in Division Street, but in general, is this idea that um, the past keeps getting repeated and that... L- things that leave a legacy sort of carry on and get cycled and they get I suppose the idea of reenactment really that we end up reenacting things particular kinds of violence um so I suppose that my angle on it is usually in that in that kind of way like looking backwards to to explain now I suppose um so yeah I don't know if I'd write anything that's it maybe it wouldn't be overtly political maybe it would be a sort of slant perhaps that sounds really similar to the way that I think about these things as well. I I actually conceive of many of the poems in this book as political poems. Um, But like Helen, um, I guess (laughs) it might be confusing why you open the book and there are all these poems about slightly whimsical emperors. And then you sort of work out actually, um, well, at least I worked out as I was writing them, that this was my allegorical way of trying to talk about something else that it was a sort of way, other way of speaking about a subject matter. Um, and so you see resonances in, par- in the past um, uh, and different ways of reading past events that might cast light on the future. And this is something that I think I did across the two political spheres that I engage with in this book, so that one might look to Chinese politics to think about politics here and vice versa. I guess that Monopoly poem is the closest thing I've come to commenting directly on our situation now, and even that's not very direct. I guess poets are just allergic to being straightforward in their utterances. It's time for question two of three. No, good. Jump over here. (laughs) Helen, can I just pick up something that you said early in, in your reading? And you seem to see a difference between internet and real life can you perhaps expand on that and do your poems live on the internet or in real life um, I'd like to hope that my poems live very much in real life um, maybe I'm just a bit of a technophobe I don't know but I'm very um, I, don't know if, I suppose that the internet is part of real life isn't it but I'm interested in there are differences in the way people communicate uh, on the internet versus in face-to-face situations I think they're inter- and there is sometimes a weird kind of poetry in the way people communicate through the internet I think lots of uh, which is not maybe something that I explore very much in my work but I certainly find it interesting I, we were talking earlier about the idea of overhearing things I don't know if there's an equivalent for like overreading things but it certainly feels like that sometimes when you're going through stuff on the internet there's so much out there and it's almost like you catch something that's a bit like you feel like you've overheard a bit of a conversation or or something like that so I'm quite interested in those differences I suppose yeah there's a big tweeter I know that you can that Twitter is a real 
form and you can you can overhear some astonishing things on Twitter. Uh, you really can, which I can't share with you, but you can. <laughs> so it looks like we've only got time for two questions because then we've got a third question, so that's good. So can we have a, a big round of applause for our three readers? They're fantastic. <laughs> They're great. Can we also thank Chato, who are doing a fantastic job for contemporary poetry with their collection, the list. It's great and it's growing and it's really a wonderful list. So a round of applause for Chato, yes. Thank you for joining us for this London Review Bookshop event. For more, visit our website at www.londonreviewbookshop.co.uk or search for the London Review Bookshop on iTunes. 